Kia ora, ko Anne O'Brien toku ingoa, he kaiorongi o waituhi o tamaki, no mai, haru mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers Festival Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2021 event. The first essay of filmmaker Gazale Goldbach's collection The Girl from Revolution Road transports readers to her childhood in Iran and an illicit party where family and friends are drinking and dancing to the Bee Gees before being swept on by armed police, detained, and for her father, sentenced to 60 lashes. It's a collection juxtaposing the riches and challenges of Iranian life alongside poignant observations of resettlement in New Zealand. Infused with a gentle humour, Goldbach provides a fresh perspective on being torn between her immigrant roots and her desire to be like everybody else, and dispels the simplistic notion of Iran bad, New Zealand good. In a timely celebration and examination of the overlapping of two cultures, she speaks with Dan Salmon. We hope you'll enjoy it. Enga mana, enga reo, enga iwi, tēnā koutou katoa, ko Dan Salmon, toku ingoa, tēnā koutou katoa. Salam and welcome to Girl from Revolution Road, a conversation between me and Ghazale Golbaksh. Before we start, I've got a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, we're here by the grace of good science and good medicine, so if you haven't scanned in, it would be really cool if you did. You can do that on the way out. Uh, and if you feel more comfortable wearing a mask today, that's cool, totally cool with all of us. Uh, also, telephones. You're welcome to take photos of us and put it on social media or whatever you want, <laughs> but please don't annoy your neighbours by taking photos of them. Uh, <laughs> and have your phone on silent. So this is going to be run as a conversation. We're going to talk for just sort of under an hour and leave some time for questions. If you could make those questions questions, that would be truly terrific. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so Ghazali is a writer and filmmaker who moved from Iran to New Zealand as a young child. Uh, in her book, The Girl from Revolution Road, which is a terrific read. She writes of her experience growing up in New Zealand as an Iranian immigrant. Rachel House describes her book, a book for our times, written with wit, lyricism, cynicism, and tenderness. I can't really add to that, but I can say I disappeared into the book, enjoying seeing us, Aotearoa New Zealanders, through the eyes of an outsider, eyes which slowly moved inside as she began to feel part of us. And reading the book, is for me reading the story of someone whose place became here. I was delighted to discover we went to the same intermediate school and even more delighted to read a takedown of a nearby girls' school uniform. <laughs> so it's that mix for me of familiar and unfamiliar that makes the book such a compelling read. So I'd like us all to join in a big welcome for Casale. Thank you. Thank you. It's working? Great. Great. So we thought we might start with a reading to kick us off, and then we can get down to some questions. I actually forgot my own book, so I, I have this <laughs> on loan from the outside uh, book people. <laughs> um, so this is from the first, uh, the second chapter called The Legend of Seven Men and Seven Women, and it's about an illicit party that my parents went to uh, in Iran during the heyday of the Islamic regime, um, which is basically a lot of things were banned, a lot of things were illegal, including parties and alcohol. But like most things, people will always find a way. <clears throat> the party is in full swing. Alcohol is banned, of course, but so are mixed gatherings of men and women. Only gender binaries are acknowledged in the Islamic Republic. Women, men and children mill about eating vast quantities of food and the adults drink homemade vodka. Aunt Rose says that the vodka tastes like bleach and cardamom, but they down it anyway. The setting has a typical factory aesthetic, cold and barren, like having a party on a dark container ship. No one has brought a boombox, so some genius thinks of blasting the tape deck from his car. 
He even shines his headlights into the warehouse, an imitation of disco lighting. Everyone loves it as the tinny, scratchy tunes of the Bee Gees blast through. The Bee Gees are obviously banned too. Even my mum took a sneaky sip of the vodka cardamom, my aunt says, despite nursing baby sister on some hardcore formula at the time. My mum wears an off-the-shoulder red top that she made herself and reveals some killer wavy locks that she sweated over getting right hours earlier. Her hijab is tossed aside as these blonde highlights need to be seen. Always fashionable, never trashy, my mum poses for Uncle Amir, but then scolds him for his angles as they will accentuate her big nose. <laughs> Growing up, my Kiwi friends would succumb to societal ideologies of beauty by hating their hips and butts. <clears throat> the big nose, however, is the Iranian woman's nemesis. There's a reason Iran still boasts one of the highest numbers of rhinoplasty operations in the world. <laughs> my aunt, younger aunt, Shad, sorry, my younger aunt, Shadi, Herself only 25, watches from the sides with her friend, scanning the crowds for some attractive faces, but feeling let down by the numerous nerds, engineers, and oddballs. My aunt and her friend only date artists and writers because that's what you do when you're 25. Her thick black brows almost meet in the middle, but purposefully so, imitating that of Brooke Shields in Blue Lagoon. Shady's long dark hair cascades around her shoulders and her glittery top sparkles. Her friend wears a green sequin top. Together, they look like Christmas. <laughs> now, my first question, I think, cuts to the reception of this book with the first audience, your family. You tell a lot of personal stories. How, how did that conversation play out? And it was actually okay, I think, particularly with this story, which gets quite dark um, by the end, um, because a lot of, you know, a lot of years have passed. This happened over 30-something years ago, and even my parents, when they recall it, you know, they laugh about it. And some of the jokes that I have in there are literally from my dad. You know, so, so at one point they get arrested, they're in jail, and my dad's telling me this hilarious story about this other drunken person in the prison cell who was in there because he had an affair with some someone and people were joking about not being in the Hilton and they were like cracking up and I'm like you're in jail he's like yeah but it was hilarious at one point and you know and I think again it's it's that whole like time has passed tragedy plus time can bring comedy um at the time though when we first moved here I, I do remember it was something we just did not talk about and I think it was still fresh it was still quite raw for them and that's understandable because it was a harsher punishment than being locked up. Yes, so there were, people were lashed, um, people were arrested, and that was for them the final kind of straw to, to leave Iran. Silent phones, please. Um, so, so going back into some of those stories and memories, <coughs> how was that for you then? It was interesting because I, I didn't know the details of a lot of the stuff, and so it was kind of like recalling it with a collective memory of my parents, my aunts and uncles. And we sit there and someone would pipe in and be like, oh, but remember this happened too. And someone's like, oh, and then this. And so it was like together creating this memory. Um, and I don't know how much of it's real, <laughs> um, but that kind of came out of that. And I just found it really fascinating, particularly with that story about the arrests and, and, and the punishments that came after. I was quite you know, it's very shocking for someone who grew up here, but unfortunately it is something that happens in, in places like Iran, particularly at that time in the early 80s to I think the early 90s was probably the harshest time of that regime. Um, yeah, I think it's, for me, it was fascinating to learn more about my family and where they came from. And then also when you're older, you realise your parents were people. <laughs> you know, my parents were in their late... 20s when they moved here and 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 by the time I heard these stories I was in my mid-30s and I was like wow like imagine doing that with two kids and coming to a new place don't know the language don't know the culture and you were only 20 something where you barely know yourself so yeah it was it was quite cathartic writing it as well um and who doesn't want to learn more about themselves and their family you know so quite often for new migrant families who who sort of move in a hurry or whatever, the younger kids learn the language and customs of a place first, and sort of there's this weird thing where you're 
not the parent, but often the, the translator. Was that the situation with you and your family? Definitely. And I read somewhere that a lot of that happens at school. Because you get to go to school, you get to kind of um, be a part of that culture a lot quicker than, say, your parents. Um, and also, I think when you're younger, you're like a sponge, so you take in a lot more as well. Um, what was great, though, was my parents kept the language, so they, they would speak to us in Farsi at home, and, and I can barely read and write it. <laughs> like I, I write like a five-year-old, and my mum loves laughing at me when I try and write to her in Farsi. She's like, good try. Um, and at one point, actually, one of the community aunties, she set up a little... Um, a little school and you know a bunch of kids would be sent there and she would try and teach us how to read and write we hated it at the time because who wants to go to school on a weekend but now i'm really happy that we did you know what i learned in that class i think i've still remembered to this day and so last night for those of you who weren't there you told this great story about your memories and how they were blurred with other people's memories and films you watched and so mm -hmm. on. And so I wonder how much you're confident you remember of life in Iran before you moved. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, one of the, the stories I told last night was this nightmare that I would have after watching Poltergeist at age four. And <laughs> I don't know if you've seen it, it's a great film. <laughs> but at one point a tree bursts through the kid's bedroom abducts the kid and tries to eat him and so as a four-year-old I was terrified and I had nightmares for for weeks and my memory of it is that I had a nightmare of that <clears throat> excuse me because there was a tree outside my own bedroom window and then years later when I told my mom she's like no we lived on an apartment floor like the eighth floor like there was no tree <laughs> <clears throat> so even though it, yeah it was, it was interesting and, and I taken the memory of the film and then blended it into my own kind of reality in a way um and, and certain little, it's, it's kind of fragments, I think, that I have, images. And again, now I'm questioning a lot of them, um, but fragments of going to school for only 20 days. Um, and the images that I remember that, and I think I remember them because it was so different when we came here. For example, sandbags at school because it was during the war. And then I would come here and I'd be like, why has no one got sandbags here? What's, you know, how are they going to protect themselves? And little did I know, you don't, you know, there's no war here. So, yeah. And now you've moved into the film industry where we use them to hold up lights. That's right. Yeah. 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 The good old sandbag. Don't steal them from the grip. They get angry. I, I just want to come back to that uh, the chapter or the essay that mm -hmm. you wrote about um, with the party and with it being broken up. And my memory of that is that people were telling on people and and I know from time I've spent in Cuba you have neighbours spying on neighbours and it has this sort of really unsettling feeling. Is, is that what was going on then? Were there people? Yes, so they went out of town to have this little party and it was a party with, you know, I was there, children were there, it was a family party um, and they left Tehran and, uh, specifically so they could go to a smaller town so it's not so obvious, you know, it's not so loud, the music and so on. But the reason they got caught was someone dobbed them in. Um, and that does happen. And so when we had lockdown in, in last year and people were like, you know, tell on your neighbours, I found that quite terrifying because it, for me it immediately links back to this, um, to this memory. And um, I think, yeah, it's... it's <laughs> I don't really know how to describe it, but I think it's something quite... Yeah, I can't think of the word. It's, um, it's disturbing, I think. And I, I, for example, just can't, could not do that. And I don't, think, I don't think we should be going towards that kind of way of life. Um, and I know it still happens in Iran and people, because there's no bars or, or, or outdoor parties, people often have things at their own homes. And so there is that risk of someone dobbing you in um, for having a mixed party or having alcohol. Um, yeah. It's funny how that, um, that sense of resistance comes out as celebrations. Yeah. The sense of rebellion is, is being quite hedonistic and doing things that we wouldn't think are quite rebellious, but over there it's, yeah, going to parties and, and having drinks and um, living a life of, 
of kind of decadence and you know and all that kind of stuff. And this is I'm talking about people in the middle to upper class. Like there is a vast difference between different people and different groups in Iran. So I think from my point of view, and when I went back to visit, that's the world I saw. Um, it would be very different if I lived in like a village or, or was from a different background. But when I went back, for example, in 2010, I hung out with my cousins and at first I was terrified, especially, you know, you have to wear the hijab and I was like, oh God, I don't know how to do this. But by the second week, I was stumbling out of cars with the hijab flying out and going to parties and living it up. Um, people will just find a way and that's what I loved about it. Um, there's still things that obviously I, that would irk me and, and the fact that you have to wear certain things, the fact that you could get arrested still um, is always there. But I think after a while you just have to deal with it. You just kind of live your life as most people there do. Um, at the same time, there are obviously people who are fighting the system continually and um, we need to acknowledge them as well. Um, recently we had uh, a lot of young women protesting the, the hijab. So in their protests, they would remove it in a public space and stand there without it as a form of protest. Many of them were arrested. Um, some of them are still in jail to this day. Um, and that's quite, you know, that's quite an incredible thing to do. And I don't, the, the courage that it would take to do so, something like that. But it's so, it's so symbolic. It's so powerful at the same time. So tell us about the title, because that's... You're not the girl from Revolution, right? No, someone said, uh, yeah, that's a good segue. Um, so the, that chapter looks at a particular girl, a uh, woman called Vida, who was one of those women who did protests. Um, she was on uh, Revolution Road um, and she took off her hijab. She stood in like a utility box, people were walking past, and she just stood there holding her white hijab. It was almost like a flag. And she just staring out into into um, uh, down the road and pictures of her went quite viral. She was arrested and then a few other women started doing the same and they became known as the girls from Revolution Road. Um, and, you know, I, I watched a documentary about um, the human rights lawyer Nasrin Sudadeh and so she defends a lot of these, she's been defending a lot of these women and now she's in jail herself, unfortunately. But there were older women as well. Like there's this footage, cell phone footage of this woman who's like probably 17. She's just like, yeah. So she takes it off. She's like on the um, on this fountain, and and it was quite beautiful to see. Um, and again, I think people are, are tired of it, you know. And and that's kind of the sense I get. I can't speak for everyone there. I don't want to. My world is here at the moment. But I think living under that kind of regime would get very tiring. And you're over here desperately trying to tear off your Westlake girls' brown tights. Yes. <laughs> One of my favourite teachers is here, so... <laughs> um, but yes, that was a horrible, horrible uniform. I think it's changed. It looked like from Heavenly Creatures, like it looked like from 1955. And it's this horrible, you know, middle of winter, you're, you have to wear a dress and woolen tights that are not comfortable in any way and a tie. I did learn how to tie a tie. That was one thing I learned in high school. So, I, I erupted in laughter reading the section about the tights. So we won't we won't spoil that by talking about it now. I um, think every woman in this room knows the issue with wool and tights. And one man uh, from reading. So so um, d tell me about that change. You know, this is all happening in Iran, and now you're here. And and what was that like for you? Um, one of the 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 first memories I have of coming here was not knowing the language. I thought I was very cool because I knew one, two, three. I thought that's all you need to know. Um, clearly I was wrong. And um, as soon as I went to school, I, I became a lot quieter. I was a very loud, extroverted person back in Iran, but here, because I couldn't communicate, I actually became a lot quieter and, and much more introverted. Um, and I was always embarrassed that I didn't know the language. And in one story, I talk about a teacher that actually made it worse. She would yell at me and tell me off because I didn't understand the homework. Um, thankfully, one of the other children came to my rescue. And, um, you know, and it was from that that I made myself really kind of um, learn quickly. And a way, the way I did that was through reading everything I could find. And that obviously then grew into a love of books and, and reading. Um, and from there, I started writing as well. Um, sadly, I've heard that this does happen still. Um, you know, for me, I thought, oh, it was the late 80s. 
you know, people aren't used to maybe having children who don't speak the language or who are new to New Zealand. But I had someone actually um, tell me that it happened to her sister recently where she was um, punished for not knowing English by a teacher and locked in a room after class, something very traumatic. And she would be at least 15 years younger than me. So this only happened, you know, maybe a decade ago. Um, so I think we still have a long way to go in terms of not punishing children just because they don't understand. Um, in saying that, I also had very funny moments and one of my favorite <laughs> memories is a young girl um, who was new to our class. She came from the former Yugoslavia and um, the teacher just looked at her, looked at me and said, oh yeah, you can sit with her. I was like, <laughs> she's like, you two, you two can talk. I'm like, I don't, wait, we don't. <laughs> As if we have this like very exotic foreign language that only foreign kids know. Um, what's sad is that that girl hated me afterwards and as if I reminded her of this, this otherness that we were both kind of boxed into. Um, she's fine, she, be, she got really cool. She you know, would be smoking behind the bike sheds, date, dating older men, so she was cool. <laughs> there's, there's a... Um Several of the essays deal with your um, need or, or desire to be more of here than of of there, including some stories where you name by first name but not last name a particular Iranian MP. Um, can can you tell us the story, the blonde surface? Story? Oh yes. <laughs> um, so we were lucky in that my parents made friends with some other Iranian um, Iranian families, and they had kids that were our age. So often, you know, my parents would have parties, and and we'd go off in, in the room and watch TV and hang out together. And a lot of us grew up together. Um, and the <laughs> being, you know, preteens, you'd find weird ways to entertain yourselves pre-internet. Um, and so one of those was um, trying to. Play, play truth or dare, which is hilarious when you're 13, um, but also kind of <laughs> harassing your friends' friends, um, particularly any guy friends. And so one night we had a sleepover. It was me and three other Iranian um, friends, and we decided to call up our um, guy friend who had his friends over. And on the phone, you know, back in the day of landlines, um, we'd all be talking, and they'd be like, oh, what do you look like? You know, what's, what's your appearance? And, and all three of us... Uh, so all four of us described ourselves as blonde, blue-eyed, um, with names like Sherry and Tiffany. <laughs> and they also did the same. So they were called, you know, like, I don't know, Chad, and they were blonde and blue-eyed too. Little did we know that a few months later we realized they were also, um, they're also, I think, from, from <laughs> they're also immigrant kids. Um, they were called, like, um, Sanjay and Sujil, and um, they were also brown like us. And so it was this weird kind of thing that we all wanted to be basically white and um, look like the people we read in our books. For me, it was looking like um, the twins from Sweet Valley High. I don't know if anyone's read those. Um, but yes, the same happened for these kids. And years later, when me and my friend would talk about it, we would just stop and be quite shocked at, at how ingrained it was in us that that was the ideal to which we should be um, aiming for. And that took a lot to get over. Um, there are still certain things I haven't got over, but I feel like that's normal for anyone. Um, but yeah, that need to be like the people I see on screen or the people that I see in my books was quite strong in me. Um, it didn't go to the other extreme. It didn't make me hate myself, but it definitely did make, it definitely was a challenge to, um, to my self-confidence, I think. And I think that's why it's so important now to change that landscape for the younger generation, to see people, I don't know, like myself, like other people, not just on screen, but in, in positions of leadership, in positions where um, they can see themselves reflected back and think, oh, I don't have to become someone else. I can keep being myself and achieve what they've achieved or, or be where they are. It, do you have any of the other kids in that story read the book and have you sort of chuckled about it since or um Gauri's has yeah <laughs> we, we chuckled about it um I don't think so I don't even know maybe they don't remember it again maybe it's a memory I, I me and Gauri's concocted in our minds maybe they weren't even there <laughs> um, 
maybe saw it in a film. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was in a film. <laughs> and have, you, have, you, have you had reactions from the people who are in the book? Uh, I have. I was most nervous about my family, not so much my parents and sister here, um, but my extended family who I kind of talk about, and I've changed their names. But there are stories that I put in that I didn't necessarily ask permission to put in, but I was very highly conscious of not making anyone look bad or, or reveal anything secretive. Um, but that was probably the most nerve-wracking, was, was writing about them. Um, but again, a lot of the stories about them are from a while ago. Um, you know, I talk about a cousin who had a terrible uh, marriage, and that, but that ended a while ago. That's probably the most kind of um, worrying one. I haven't heard her from her, though. I don't know what she thought about it. It's okay. She doesn't live here. She lives in Florida. So so, so do you think, now you've realised your parents are adults, do you think, <laughs> looking back on that... Sorry, but, Mum. <laughs> oh, it does take a while. My mum might be here, too. Oh, yeah. Um, do you think, looking back, that the they carried a bigger stress than you, that you carried a stress? How, does, how do you think that shakes out in a family with young children and parents, the move? I mean, I, definitely. They, they had it much harder than me. And, and part of that was that naivety that you have as a child where things are just norm, you know, normalised so quickly, whereas my parents, it's, they had to you know, leave an entire life behind. Like I remember my mum telling me how they had to sell everything in their house and and she picked a few little things that she brought with her, including this knife. And she still has this knife to this day. Um, and some other cutlery, because they, they were told that cutlery was really expensive here. Um, and maybe like a little, you know, her jewellery. And that's kind of it. And it's, it's quite astounding to think your entire life in two suit bags, uh, suitcases. And that's, that's all it was. And we were lucky. You know, we came on a visa. We weren't seeking asylum. We, weren't, we didn't have to go through the refugees. Um, process, which a lot of our uh, family friends and peers did. So that part, you know, even in, in the, that kind of community, there's still a hierarchy of who, who lucked out more than the other. Um, and my parents were lucky in that they got work quite, quite um, quickly, and so that helped with the language. My dad had studied in the States, so he already knew English, um, and he was able to get work here. He had a, um, a skill that was needed at the time. And um, and now they're they're fully like kiwi eyes, kiwi eyes, kiwis. My parents love just you know getting a flat white and walking on the beach, and and um, they watch the rugby every time and so on. I don't even watch the rugby, but they um, yeah they can't imagine moving back. Um, even though my mum actually at one point when we were going for our citizenship, she didn't want to. She was a bit afraid of giving up her passport because it would mean that she couldn't return. Um, and then but soon after she realised that she was going to stay here and this would be the new home. And I think, again, I don't know how that would feel for someone. Um, and it's quite, it's quite a, a, a big thing to go through and that's something I didn't have to necessarily deal with. One, one, of, the, one of the things that I find really interesting in the book is, is that there's sort of this celebration and criticism of or, and attraction to American popular culture. It's a, big, it's a big thing through there, and they're sort of reaching out to different elements of of often US culture, but, you know, also culture here and mm -hmm. so on. And the one thing you don't give up that you still hold on to is food. <laughs> Definitely. Well, I mean, you know, some of the food here is so bland, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Persian food is amazing. <laughs> um, it's true. American pop culture, I, it, it's funny, and I can confess to, to everyone here, I actually used to hate New Zealand growing up. I'm sorry. It's no longer the case. But and my, I was so obsessed with moving somewhere like California or living in America because, again, it was what I saw in the movies and what I read about, and it just seemed like the great and powerful um, Emerald City. Um, but just like Emerald City, it's, it's a facade. <laughs> America, especially now, it's not so great. Um, and so I was obsessed with, with the language, even like I tried to imitate the accent sometimes. I um, you know, became obsessed with learning the history of America. I'd even draw little stupid flags in my books when I was in school. And then I did go and I visited a few times over the years and, and I did enjoy myself, but it's kind of, 
I think similar to a lot of other people, when you, you know, it's part of your coming of age, it's part of growing up and learning where you actually, learning that home is actually the perfect place. And that's kind of what I learned over the years. And, and now I love living here. And it's, and it's, it took a while to get to this point. It took a while to accept that I'm a little different, but that's okay. Um, New Zealand isn't America, and that's great. Uh, <laughs> um, and yeah, it took it took a while, and I think um, I'm in a very happy place now. And I think that's why I kind of like celebrating both the negatives and the positives of of New Zealand in my book as well. I'm not going to let go of the food thing quite. Oh yes, the food thing. I rambled on. Sorry. No, no, no. It's, that's great because because it, it, it gives us another way back to the food, which is even when you're in LA, you're still looking for Iranian food. Yeah. So just. just Talk to us about that for a bit. What's what the the need is there? Because it's not just the blandness, is it? Oh, no, right. I mean it's yeah. it's that connection, and you do miss it. And I get jealous of my cousins, say, who are in America or the U or the UK, where there is a bigger Iranian community, and therefore there are things like Iranian shops or restaurants. Um, we have like two, I think, here, <laughs> um, but over there, there's like a whole neighbourhood full of it, and and. Particularly because I was living there alone, I think for me it was a connection to my family as well as to the culture. Um, and I loved it. I loved just, I, I would take a two hour bus ride in LA. No one catches a bus in LA, but I, I was determined. And I would get to Westwood, which is an area near UCLA, which is full of Iranian shops. Um, and I would go get my hair cut there and then go get some lunch. And it was just this kind of feeling that I just never got here in terms of. Um, in terms of the places outside of my family home. And I think that's quite, that was quite important for me to have that. And um, for, yeah, food is interesting because I feel like every, every culture will tell you their food is the best. Um, but I can guarantee you, you will love Persian food. Uh, <laughs> and um, for me, I think because my mum is a great cook, again, it links a lot to family as well. And in Iranian culture, you know, guest culture is huge. So if, if you were to come to our house, my mum would go out of her way to cook everything and anything at the same time and just, you know, bring it to you. If you go to Iran, I've had a lot of people tell me when they went to Iran, they absolutely loved it because people are so welcoming. Um, and that's part of the psyche, that's part of the culture is that, you know, if you showed up in Iran and I told my cousin, she'd be, immediately put you up in their house and take you out and take you around. Um, I've had friends who met strangers on the on the plane there who invited them to their house and, and they took up the offer, which was great. Um, and I think part of that's also to show that Iran is, be, you know, not the government. It's not that regime. Um, the people at its heart are just like, just like everyone else. Do you think, I mean, it, it's interesting you talk to any migrant culture in New Zealand and they'll complain that, we, you know, the first people who arrived will complain that there's not ingredients, you know, from the Dutch so who turned true. up and there was no coffee and, you know, now we're, you know, right to, to Ethiopian migrants who are now bringing in Endura so we can have Ethiopian food. Do you think there's a point where, where you get a, sort of enough critical mass of people that the ingredients are there and it's easier for people Definitely. to Definitely. Um, I don't know if anyone's been through Customs New Zealand with a big thing that your aunt gave you from Iran and you see that beagle coming to you, making a beeline, you're like, oh, yeah, that's happened to me a few times. Um, yeah, certain things like dried fruit. We have that a lot of dried fruit in our in our um, uh, cuisine and and certain things that you just couldn't get here. My mum would ask for whenever someone went overseas, um, but now I think they've loosened up a little, and I think maybe it's yeah maybe there's more of it. Um, it's quite funny. I felt like <laughs> you feel like you're bringing in illegal drugs, but it's just like it's dried lemon. I swear. <laughs> um, yeah, and even just the shop, like there's a couple of shops in Dominion Road. I don't, I don't know how long they've been there, but they haven't been there since the 80s. You know, that's quite new. On the back of the book, you promised to dispel the simplistic notion, Iran bad, New Zealand good. Do you want to have a go <laughs> at dispelling that for us? Yes, let me bring out my cigarette. Um, <laughs> that's a loaded question. Um, no, I, I was highly aware when I wrote the book I, I wanted to be as truthful as possible. And like I said, I, I grew up not loving living here. And part of that was feeling unsettled, which I think is quite common for a lot of um, immigrant children. 
And so it wasn't necessarily that, that it was New Zealand's fault. It was the fact that I felt so different from the majority of people around me. Um, and, and also some of the little microaggressions that I had to encounter, like the, the teacher, um, little racist moments or, or big racist moments. I've had people yell at stuff at me on the street. Um, and all of those kind of things, I think, are important to talk about. Um, just as it's important to say that, you know, the people in Iran are not their government. Um, and I think particularly in New Zealand, growing up, saying you're from Iran, people didn't necessarily know where that was. We don't have that history with Iran like the US does. A lot of people here actually would think I meant Iraq, and it was just like a misspelling. Um, even I didn't know much about it, and one of the stories I have in there is, is in primary school they ask you to um, write about your family tree. So, you know, kids would go back home and ask their parents, and they'd come back going, I'm a quarter Scottish, a quarter English, a quarter Welsh. And so I went home, and I went to my mum, and I'm like, so are we quarter Scottish or half English? She's like, no, just Persian. I'm like, yeah, but it's got to be more than that. She's like, no, it's just Persian. I'm like, no, come on, we've got to be Scottish or something. And she got angry. She's like, we're Persian. It's like the oldest civilization in the world. <laughs> I was still mad. And then... Um, <laughs> And because I just didn't know. I didn't even know what Persia was, really. And then um, years later, actually, just a couple of years ago, I did one of those ancestry tests, and the results came back, and it goes, 100% Persian. <laughs> <laughs> so my mum was right, as always. Um, what was I talking about? <laughs> was sort of New Zealand good Still fuming. That, oh, yes, sort of, yeah. yes. Um, and so little things like that, I think, um, you know, again, seeing them in a comedic way helps, and that's kind of my um, way of getting through dark things sometimes, or, or um, that's my coping mechanism. Um, and I think it's important because I, the feedback I'm getting from people about the book, particularly from people I didn't, assume, didn't think would want to read it, um, has been really lovely. Um, my, my friend's parents, for example, a lot of them would read it and really enjoy it. And, and it's, it's not just seeing New Zealand from an outsider's point of view, but it's also talking about something like Iran. Like I, I have a, a few chapters looking at the recent history, um, talking about the hijab, and a lot of that I researched when I was doing my PhD, so I kind of brought that into this just as a way to kind of give an overview of, of this world that I kind of inhabit, New Zealand and Iran. But from an outsider's point of view, again, I need to stress that it's from my point of view, someone who grew up here in the diaspora. Um, and that was also important to me because I, I think we need more stories from people in the diaspora. You know, of course we have, we need to read stories from people growing up in Iran or, or growing up here, but I think for people like me who are kind of in that in-between space, there's different things, and I, and I hope I've kind of brought that up in the book as well. Is that why you wanted to write the book? Yeah. Um, I'm very thirsty. I had a lot of wine last night with the other writers. Man, writers can drink. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did. I, I wanted to write, again, I wanted to write from an authentic place, and I think as I was writing this, it was... Um, I was learning more about how I thought about these things as well, so it was quite cathartic in that way. Um, and then by the end of the book, I realized, oh, it's, it is like a delayed coming of age. It's like you realize by the end, this is my place, and now I'm actually happy about it. And, and it took writing this to really accept that and to believe it. Do you think, I was just wondering, thinking about this and thinking about Goldreese has written a, a mm -hmm. memoir, um, do you think there are more women from recent migrant groups writing about their experience than men at the moment? And if you do, why do you think that is? That's a good question. Um, and again, in the in the PhD, I looked at memoirs written by Iranians um, in the early 2000s. There was a big boom, um, particularly from Iranian women who lived in the States. So you had Azar uh, Nafisi. She wrote Reading Lolita in Tehran. Um, and there was another one called um, Lipstick Jihad, <laughs> great title, um, about Oza de Muavani, who was born in the States, but she returned to Iran as a journalist. Um, and she was there in 2009 during the, the protests and the, um, uh, during that election. And there was a huge spike, and, and part of the reason is, is because it was post 9-11. So people were very interested 
in stories from that region. Um, and also, I think, similar to what I wanted to do, um, people wanted to write more authentic stories so that it wasn't just terrorists from the Middle East. Um, they wanted to kind of change that um, landscape a little as well. And I think for women, maybe, because it is a type of confession, you know, again, I'm, I'm generalizing, this is what I've just learned in the research, um, they're just more open to it, maybe. I mean, there's been a couple of uh, male authors who've written memoirs, um, including one, um, oh, I've forgotten its name, I'm sorry, but it's called Rosewater, and he was arrested after appearing on The Daily Show um, with Jon Stewart. He appeared, it was a comedy um, piece, but the authorities you know, used the excuse that he was a spy for the Americans, and so he was arrested, and so the book kind of looks at the days of, of um, when he got arrested and when he was in jail. Um, but yeah, and, and there was a specific academic who talked about memoirs as confessions and how it's actually not that um, not that done, not not that popular in, in Iranian culture. People are a lot more reserved and more introverted, where it's quite big business in the West. So it's quite um, a different thing to do. Um, uh, there's not many autobiographies, for example, written by Iranians, um, whereas people in diaspora, that seems to be the go-to. Um, and I think it's easier, too, because you already got the stories. You're not making anything up. It's there. And like I said, for me, it was just, it was more interesting because you're learning about yourself and your past. Um, yeah. Are there stories you left out because they were too... Definitely. I mean, there's so much more I wish I could have put in, but... I had a deadline and it was a pandemic and <laughs> um, no, that's an excuse. My publisher would be like, that's an excuse. Um, no, there are. And I think I'd, you know, if, if, if I get the chance to write another, it would, I would love to spend a lot of time on it and really kind of go into more detail and really explore some of the themes that I've kind of brought up in this. Um, because this was my first kind of foray into, into writing and um, memoir and, and essays. It was, um, there's a lot more I think I can, I can get into, yeah. So this was kind of a an initial exploration. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Where would you go deeper? That's a good question. Maybe in the later years, I look a, a lot at my childhood and, and teenage years, but then I kind of stopped. And now that I'm a bit older, maybe I'm willing to go into the 20s and 30s. So we'll see, yeah. And they played out here or overseas? Yes, they played. Well, here and then... Um, London, I lived there for a bit. So it's a lot of stories from London, let me tell you. Yeah. <laughs> so, so do you look around, uh, you know, reflecting on your experience and, um, and the fact, you know, there's maybe more ingredients here. Do you look around and go, we're getting better at welcoming people here? I'm, I'm not looking for a soft yes. <laughs> um, but do you, do you think we are? Do you think it's getting easier for migrants? I, I don't know. I, because I'm no longer in that space. I'm, I'm no longer the new migrant. So I don't know. And I don't want to say we are or we aren't because I, I don't have that experience now. Um, I hope we are. <laughs> and, and, you know, I mean, I can't believe so many people have turned out for this. And that's a great step towards learning more about another culture and, and, and someone from that culture. And, and I hope that's an example of, of where we're going. Um, definitely. And even... Um, you know, on screen, which is which is my area, we're seeing a lot of changes, and which which is great. And I hope it's not just to tick boxes. I hope that is the way we're going. In terms of not just people on screen, but the people behind it, the people who are making decisions, who are making the work. I think that's super important as well. The turnout could reflect that we haven't been allowed to go anywhere for a year, and people have this idea: coming here, Fine. we can pretend yeah, we're in Iran yeah, for all an hour. Right. <laughs> Do you, do, you, do you think that that whole sort of the, the all of us being stuck in one place <laughs> is, is harder for people who have strong connections to other places? Like, is it a tougher thing for... Oh, for sure. Things? Yeah. I mean, we, we all hear stories about people who have family members stuck somewhere. Else. I mean, I have... Uh, one of my friends, her family is in India at the moment, and she's just, you know, it's horrific. And she can't even go about her daily business because she can't stop thinking about what is happening over there. And, um, again, we're so lucky here that we... Just even last night being um, on stage with everyone having having the wines, I, I, I couldn't believe it, that what is happening in the world is happening right now, and we're, we're standing here having a wine and, and having a good laugh. And it's quite surreal to me. It's kind of a, 
absurd even. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So so in the book you, you skip this time that you might go into deeper in the next book, but we go, won't go into deeper now and spoil it. But you, <laughs> you sort of leap into, into dating. Oh, yeah. And it's quite a different feel than earlier in the book. Um, do you, I mean, do, talk me through that, why you chose to put in those sections and whether you think that your experience was different and whether, this is a long question, <laughs> and whether that experience was informed by the earlier story we told about you pretending to be Sherry, mm. whatever the name was. Um, yes, part of the reason I wanted to write it was to, to not only write about my identity and culture, I wanted to kind of veer into something else, which is the privilege of people who, you know, it's the, it's the privilege of non-POC writers where they can write about anything. But I feel like as soon as you say, you know, I'm, I'm writing about Iran, people just pigeonhole you into just writing about that. So I kind of wanted to take a step out and be like, well, this is something anyone can write. Um, and from my point of view of someone who's been dating and using online apps and stuff, I thought that'd be quite interesting for people who haven't done that. Um, and yeah, in terms of going back to the old story, um, yeah, it's it's interesting. I think online dating is is a whole new thing, and and once you do it, though, you kind of get used to it. But it is very superficial in a lot of ways, and I think sometimes it does hark back to that um, the ideologies I had in my head as a kid sometimes resurface now. I'm like, why am I always swiping yes on white guys? I don't understand. And it's just in me. It's ingrained in me. Um, and, and there's so many, you know, I had a lot of fun stories and I wanted to kind of change from that kind of dark or, or serious tone of, of some of the other stories and bring in something a bit more lighthearted and a little bit more um, contemporary, I guess. Did you find the answer to that question, why you were swiping? No. <laughs> Everyone has preferences. Um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's a hard one. I know my friends are in here and they're probably laughing their, their heads off right now at that. Um, no, I don't. I, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's something for my therapist, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so, so one conversation we had coming in was whether this was a, a book of essays or a memoir, and that was sort of me being geeky and trying to pigeonhole it, and it, it sold as a book of personal essays. Yeah. I was sort of interested whether that was that was a, a choice for it to be broken up, because it, when you get to the end and look back, you feel like, I've just read a memoir. Mm. I didn't, yeah, I didn't set out to do a memoir specifically, because I just didn't think I had enough to say. And again, I didn't want to get pigeonholed into that. Iranian woman writing a memoir thing cause, because I knew it had been so done so many times. And I was really loving um, certain books that came out a couple of years ago. Ashley Young's um, book of essays, Rose Liu's book of essays. And so I thought, oh, maybe that's kind of the direction I want to go. But I think you're right. I think once I started writing it, it didn't necessarily go in that way and it did become fragments of a memoir more so than um, actual essays. Um, and I think it was just easier, I think, in terms of writing an entire memoir, it just seemed a bit more overwhelming than breaking it up. You'd have had to fill in those missing bits. I would have had to fill in a lot of missing bits, which, again, that's for my therapist, so... <laughs> and, 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 and one of the really sort of um, wonderful things reading it is you shift between uh, sort of heartbreaking stuff and hard stuff and really funny stuff. Did you think about that as you wrote it? Do you think about that as you structured the book? I do, and that's usually how I write. And even my screenplays, I try and do, you know, comedy even when it's a drama. And that's usually good comedy is that it's a drama, but it becomes funny. Um, often the more absurd something is, the more funny it is. And so that was, I knew I wanted to go in writing like that. And when I wrote articles um, previously for like spin-off and um, Villainess, I really did kind of, I, I just wanted to, to be funny about certain things. So, so article, the articles for the spin-off I wrote about um, the bachelor, not, yeah, the bachelor, like dating shows, the block, like ridiculous reality TV that you have to make fun of, like you can't be serious about it. And I really enjoyed that kind of tone. And I think um, it, it, it's, 
it's something I love about Taika Waititi's work. I think he does that really well. He takes something quite serious and, and dark and quite and quite moving, but adds this comedic spin to it um, that's still very relatable. And it doesn't go into parody. It doesn't go into slapstick. It's just something. I think maybe it's easier to um, to digest, maybe. And maybe you know, it's. I, I don't think I could do a real serious, dramatic thing. It's just not in me. So it's not my personality. And how much license do you take, you know, with when you have characters come together in your book and they have conversations and there's and you're sort of drawing on your memory and talking to other people? How how much creative license do you give yourself? I mean, there are some. Um, majority of the stories, I mean, all the stories are real. I didn't want to lie, and, I, and I've and I've seen that in other memoirs where you're like, mm, that's not really what happened. Um, and obviously, some of the parts I've had to embellish. Um, particularly when I'm writing dialogue. Um, and some parts I would tell my mum, she's like, that's not what happened. I'm like, well, what happened? She's like, I don't know. I'm like, well, there you go. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but for the most part, yeah, I, I try to stay as, as real as possible. And, and um, again, it's, it's easier because it's from my point of view and I'm highly aware that I'm writing it from my own memories and that's kind of what, um, what I kept having to remind myself. Um, and again, not writing anything bad. That, that was my thing. Don't write bad about your family. Don't write. And not that there was anything that I wanted to write anyway. Um, and I was aware of, of including people without asking their permission. I thought it'd be quite rude to, to write about people and not tell them. Um, and so some of the names, like I said, have been changed because a lot of them is just little mini stories that I didn't, I don't really go into depth about certain people. Um, again, purely because I didn't want to kind of um, do that without asking them. It, it is it is hard though when you're writing something factual, because the drama comes out of the bad people, mm -hmm. and you know, and and that's where the conflict is that keeps the story going and keeps us on your side. And in the book, that's quite an easy thing in Iran, because it's the regime. But here. There's not this faceless regime, and so you have to pick antagonists, I guess. Yeah. I mean, did you, you, did you agonise over that? I know that there's not the teacher in the room, but there's a teacher <laughs> in there who doesn't come out of it that well. You alluded to another teacher before. No. But, you know, how, how conscious was that? Process. I think again, those like this particular teacher, for example, it's someone I've never seen since that day, and, and I specifically didn't put the real name. Um, I called her Miss B, and um, she was a teacher in my fourth form class. She came up to me immediately, she made a beeline, and she's like, Have you been in New Zealand long? And I just went, Yes, most of my life. Everyone cracked up. She hated me since. Um, and she was, and then she would moan and 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 be really catty about some of the um, some of the other students in the class who were who were from China or from um, South Korea because they would speak in their language, and she'd be like, "Oh, they don't understand." Like she was very mean and she was very horrific, and 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 I think they got rid of her after a while anyway, <laughs> which is great. Um, and I actually had a teacher from that school email me, terrified that it was her because her name starts with a B. And she was like, oh, she wrote this beautiful email, like going, I'm so sorry, I'm trying to like teach. I'm like, it's definitely not you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the teacher that was uh, in primary school who, who told me off and made me cry. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I forgot where, where I was going with that, sorry. No, no. That, 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 that's <laughs> I'm so right. angry about that teacher. <laughs> we, we feel it. I mean, we are actually... Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things we read that tell us what not to say to migrants. Mm. You know, there's there's endless spin-off essays where, and he asked me where I came from, and, you know, that sort of thing. I mean, do, do, to a room of obviously well-meaning people, are there, are there things people can do to help I mean, make people feel as though they're not, you know? Yeah, I think it's 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 like with anything, you know. You don't be a dick. Um, <laughs> I don't mind when people ask where I'm from. I think it's all context. Um, you know, it's the way you say it. It's what your intention behind it is, and all that comes into play. Because sometimes people are genuinely interested. Um, you know, if, if I say what my name is, they're like, "Oh, where's that from?" And you're like, "Well, 
that's a genuine question. I'm not going to get angry about that. Um, and that's just my opinion. I and and I think because I'm like that person, I enjoy asking people, you know, learning more about different backgrounds. And, and again, someone who travels, it was kind of the go-to question. Um, I think you know the but the biggest thing is is and this came out a lot after the Christchurch attacks was this idea of us and them. And I think that's the biggest problem we have. And this applies to a lot of different groups, obviously, but I think in terms of different migrant groups and, and, and New Zealanders, and I put that in quotation marks because we all are, um, it's that kind of mentality, that binary that I think needs to change. And people still have that, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, people who think because you were born here, therefore you're a true New Zealander, I, I completely disagree with. Um, and... And things like that, I think, need to change. And that's that whole discourse around othering, right? Seeing think people as an other rather than just another person who happens to have a different background to you. Um, and not being afraid of it. I think a lot of it comes from fear. Um, you know, the fear of not knowing, the fear of, of something or someone you don't know much about. Um, and, and I think we have, we have, um, we live in a place where we can do that. I, I really hope we can. Um, you know, we don't have... Trump as a president, we don't have that. I mean, <laughs> I was about to moan about a certain politician, but I won't. I, th I think um, your opening to that question should be our flag. I think if we have another <laughs> referendum, it should Please have, don't, don't, put on. don't be a dick. Don't be it. a dick. I think we can all get behind that. Um, <laughs> I've just really, you know, we are chewing through the time though, so oh, I just yeah. wonder if there's any questions from, we've got time for a few questions from the floor. Um, we've got microphones here, if you don't mind going up to a microphone. We've probably got, yeah, do you want to pop up there? If anyone else has a question, we'll scan the microphones. And if you're standing behind them, we've probably got time for four or five if we talk quickly. Be kind. Hello. Hi. Hello, my name's Wynne. Um, I just want to say thank you for being here and thank you for your book, which I read about six months ago, quite a while ago now. I thought that rather than describe it as a series of essays or um, uh, a memoir, I felt it was more like memory stories mm. and it really resonated with me. And in your acknowledgements, you talk about... Uh, you acknowledge the um, the fact that some of the stories were lent to you by friends, and and I I, I pondered about that for a while, as opposed to stories that are because I do writing as well, mm -hmm. but not like you, <laughs> um, and um, and and do you want to ask a question? Okay, come on. <laughs> do, do we have a question? The question is, as opposed to you being given the stories, as opposed to you having the stories or being lent the stories, what, in your view, is the difference? Yeah, thank you. Um, nice thank you. I think being lent the story, I, I talked to some, you know, certain friends about including our memories together in the book and I included certain stories but I wanted to let them know that I was including it because again I, I felt I felt that it was wrong of me to write about someone and something without ever telling them that they were going to be in the book um, and you know we've all heard stories of people going oh my god I just read myself in a book <laughs> and not being told that that was going to happen and I just thought it was just the decent thing to do um, and I say lent because I'm not. I'm taking it. I'm writing it in my own way, as opposed to taking it and, and, and owning it. I think it was kind of borrowing what they said, borrowing, you know, borrowing um, that story in a way that it could be told again, maybe if they did, if they wrote it, as opposed to taking and owning it and saying this is only my memory, this is only my story. I came up with it with a friend. So that's kind of if that makes sense. Yeah. Thank you. We've got about a minute and a half. Does anyone else have a question? So if we, we do, we have one here. Hi. Early on in the conversation, you talked about a teacher who was really mean and another kid rescued you. Yes. Could you tell us about things that Kiwi kids did that made you feel included, welcomed? Um, yeah, I mean, that, that kid saw how upset I was and... Um, 
it, it was not understanding the homework in that example. And so he came over and he he found a way to communicate to me in that in the way that I would understand how to do the homework as opposed to just yelling at me like the teacher. He had the patience, I think, is, is what's important. The patience to um, to help, but the but also the knowledge that they the, the we are trying, like no one does no one's going to school and not wanting to partake. Um, and again, it comes back to that not othering and not treating someone like a complete outsider, like that other teacher who would literally just bitch about those students in the back and ignore them the entire class. Um, I think it's being aware of what the child's limitations are. Um, I'm talking about the teacher, sorry. But in terms of the, the kids, I think it's just, I think kids have more empathy sometimes and maybe that helps. And that's kind of what I felt from that, from that boy that came to help me. He was very good looking too, that helped. <laughs> <laughs> now we are running out of time. Um, I've got some really good news though. Ghazali is sitting at the desk outside after this and can sign your books and answer questions there. So please do go and see her afterwards. Uh, before that, though, I'd like to all of us join in thanking her for a great hour. Yeah. Norera, tenakoto, tenakoto, tenakoto katoa. Thank you all. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Tanakwe, you've been listening to a podcast from the 2021 Auckland Writers' Festival Waituhi o Tāmaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.